still not decided what series I shall embark upon. And so just for this afternoon, I would have you take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I believe that where I landed this afternoon, it does tell very well with what we heard this morning as we were reminded that we are aliens who suffer even now as we look for that day of glory that is yet to appear. And the Apostle Paul has some words, practical words of application to those people who were aliens there in the church at Philippi. So follow as I start reading in verse 27. Philippians 1 and verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear with that I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For you, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. As the Apostle Paul writes to this church at Philippi, he has spent much of the letter up to this point addressing the concern that the church at Philippi had been experiencing. They were concerned for the Apostle Paul. No doubt they've heard that he's in prison and they want to know how he's doing in the midst of suffering for the cause of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul addresses that concern in these opening verses of this letter. He speaks about the reality that the Gospel has gone forth even in the midst of his suffering. He's talked about the reality that he's not sure whether he wants to die and go and be with the Lord or continue on in the work that God has given him to do. So he has this ongoing conflict in his own life. It is here that he says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But when we come to verse 27, Paul sort of changes the focus. And instead of addressing the concern about his well-being, he now admonishes, exhorts the church there at Philippi. When we come to verse 27, it's the first exhortation given to this church in this letter. He exhorts them and follows that with what he expects that exhortation to look like 
as it's lived out every day in the lives of these believers. So I want you to consider two things with me this afternoon, two simple things. Number one, I want you to notice his appeal or his exhortation. And then secondly, the application, how that is applied to their lives as believers in Christ. So first of all, notice the appeal or the exhortation. He says here, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, there's a couple things I want you to notice about this appeal. First of all, the substance. What's he appealing to? What, what, what exactly is his exhortation? And then secondly, I want you to notice the significance of this exhortation. So what exactly does he mean when he says, I, I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? That word conduct is not the ordinary word used when one might speak of one's walk. For example, in chapter 3 and, and, and verse uh, 17, I believe. Yes. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern of life. So there, there's an ordinary word for walk, your, your, your life. But that's not the word he uses here when he has the idea of conduct. The word he uses here is the, is the same word used in the noun form in chapter 3 and verse 20, where he says something about our citizenship. Our citizenship. This appeal is that these believers should so live that there's no doubt that their citizenship is part of a kingdom that one becomes a part of through the gospel. You're to so live that your life is marked out as not being from here, but you belong someplace else. The appeal is for them to live like citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, now this would have been very familiar to the people at Philippi. Because they were, they were Roman citizens. And though they lived some 800 miles from Rome, they lived under Rome's authority. <coughs> they practiced Roman customs. They took pride in being Roman citizens. And what Paul is saying to the believers there is, in the same way that you are citizens of Rome, and it's marked out by how you live and what you do and whose authority you're under, so much more you ought to show yourselves to be citizens of the gospel. Citizens 
of this spiritual kingdom that you became a part of when God by His grace arrested you in your sin and brought you to the Son so that you might be reconciled to Him. So live that your life demonstrates that you are not of this world, or as we heard this morning, that you are aliens and strangers here because your real citizenship belongs someplace else. No, no matter where you may live geographically, you must be viewed, you ought to be viewed as citizens of a different country, of a heavenly one. It, it, I could illustrate it like this. You know, every so often you might meet somebody that has a, a different type of accent. Somebody might walk in this afternoon and say, How are you all doing? And you look at them and say, You're not from here, are you? No, how do you all know that? I can tell by your accent. You're from down south? Oh, yeah. That's where their, their place of residence is. And, and Paul's admonishing the believers at Philippi to so live that, that people might want to come up to you and say, you're not from around here, are you? There's something different about you. Where, where are you from? And then we say to them, I'm from a kingdom that right now is invisible. But it has the best ruler of all. And I'm under His authority. And I want to live my life to please Him in all that I do. That's Paul's appeal to them. To live like citizens whose life is worthy of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And by that, he means that you so live that you make the kingdom of God look very appealing. It's something that others would perhaps want to know more about. Perhaps be a part of. So live in this world in that way. William Hendrickson says, to exercise this citizenship is a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ means to conduct it in harmony with the responsibilities which the gospel imposes and with the blessings which it brings. So, so here is the substance of this appeal. Live like people whose citizenship is 
in heaven. Well, what's the significance of this appeal? As this letter is being read by one of the elders there in the church at Philippi, there, there are certain things that stand out when they read this statement, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. One thing that stands out is this. This ought to be a priority. This is not to be a secondary issue. This ought to be a priority in your life. The, the term only points to the importance of the appeal given. Paul has been writing about his present circumstances. He, he is unsure as to whether he's going to live or die. He doesn't know in the next few minutes if his head's going to be in a basket, having been chopped off, or, or whether he's going to be allowed to live and go on. But what Paul's saying here is, what, whatever happens to me, this ought to be your number one concern. Whether I die or whether I live, your top priority ought to be to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Whatever else you do, that's what he's saying, only whatever else you do, do this. Conduct yourselves. Be citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. Nothing should distract you from doing that. No excuse should be made. So live in this world that your life is a light and that your life is salt, keeping back wickedness. And living righteously. This should be a priority. Secondly, this should be taken very seriously. Very seriously. This statement that Paul makes is not a suggestion. This statement that Paul makes isn't simply a wish. It's not that Paul says, I have three wishes for you. Paul speaks in a way they know this is a command. This comes by way of an imperative. This is how I want you to live. So it, it ought to be taken seriously. It, it, it ought to, when, when they heard this read and when they heard this statement, it ought to bind their conscience. There ought to be a sense, God forbid that I do anything else except so live in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. So it's to be a priority. It's to be taken seriously. But thirdly, it's to be continual. Continual. This is not a one-time directive. This was not once, it is 
happens, it's completed. Don't ever pick it up again. They knew from the language of the Apostle Paul that this was their ongoing responsibility. No matter where they're at, whether they're in the workshop, whether they're in the classroom, whether just simply in a social setting, whether I'm in my home, wherever I am, this appeal ought to be taken as a priority and seriously continually as I live my life here on this earth. You know, there are some who take this, this statement very seriously when they're in church. Here I will conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But they act like this statement is, is, is like a hat we put on our head. And when we get home, we take it off. And now it no longer applies. And, and so I treat my wife differently than I might if we were in church. I, I respond to my husband differently than, than if we were at church. I, I address my parents differently than if I were at church. And Paul says, no, this is to be continual wherever you go. And so here, here then is, is Paul's appeal to these believers. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But now then, secondly, let us take a little bit of time and just consider the application of all this. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul doesn't say, listen, if you live this way, your life will be just filled with violins playing in the background and things will go well for you. You'll never have any trouble. It'll just be a life that, that, you, that you've dreamt of. It's not what he says. It's like the Apostle Paul heard Micah this morning and said, you know what, that's true. You're going to experience some difficulties, some challenges. People aren't going to applaud you. They're going to oppose you. If, if you notice what the Apostle Paul says, there, there's three areas that we face as we seek to live this way in this world. First of all, there's opposition Verse 28, in no way be alarmed by your opposition. There will be people that oppose you. If you seek to live by the truth of God's Word, people will oppose you. We, we live in a time in which we see all types of opposition to the truth of God's Word. You can bank on it. But not only is there opposition, but notice also he says there will be suffering. There will be suffering. Verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer 
for his sake. There will be suffering. And then thirdly, there is conflict. Conflict. Look at verse 30. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. Paul says, what, what, what a, a great salesman he is. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And if you do so, you'll face opposition, suffering, and conflict. You will face people who will stand against you. You will face people who will want to hurt you. And you will face people who will want to argue with you. Now go live like this. And yet he's very transparent. He's telling, he's telling us the truth. And, and where, where do you think Paul came across this thought? It's by the life he lived. For me to live is Christ. And that cost the Apostle Paul. And he faced opposition, suffering, and conflict. None of us should feel as though we might be exempt from these things. But as you stop and think about it, as you stop and think about these three areas, opposition, suffering, and conflict, what does that make us vulnerable to? Well, it makes us vulnerable to compromise. When you face opposition, you might be tempted to compromise His truth. Right? I mean, when you have to stand before people and say, you know what? I don't care what people say. There's none of us that are good. No, not one. When you stand up and proclaim, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. I was at a conference a couple weeks ago and at the conference, we had to take these quizzes. It, it was my type of quizzes because as they were lecturing, they would say, now, on the quiz after we get done here, question number one is, and they put it on the screen, you know, everyone or all that do such and such are guilty of this, true or false? And the answer to this is true. All right? So with every question on the quiz, we had the question given to us and the answer. Love that kind of quiz. All right? But one of the instructors said, one of the questions was, had the word all. All who've done such and such are guilty of, and he says, let me give you a little hint here. Anytime you hear the word all, mark it down, it's false. Because there has to be an exception to everything. To which I simply murmured to the guys around me, what about all have sinned? Is there an exception to that? That's true. So if you ever have a question with all in it, and it starts with all have sinned, that one's true. That's a reality. We are all sinners. And people don't want to hear that. People want to believe we all have a little bit of good in us. And the Bible makes it clear there's none righteous. No, not one. And people are going to oppose you. 
You're going to be called names. You're too narrow. And you might be tempted to compromise. If you're going to go through suffering, you might become you might become apathetic and just not get involved. Just be indifferent. Don't let it be known so that you don't suffer. And when it comes to conflict, I, I, people don't always believe me, but I hate conflict. I really do. And then you might be vulnerable to fear. So it's interesting with each one of these that Paul sets before us, there's a temptation that comes along beside us. With opposition, there's a fear of a temptation to compromise. With suffering, there's the temptation to become apathetic. With conflict, there's a temptation to fear. Don't we all feel something of that? As we live in this world and seek to live godly? Seek to live in a way that is worthy of the Gospel of Christ? I do. I I do far too often. So what's Paul's remedy to these things? And with this, I'll simply set it before you and we'll close our time together, but I believe Paul sets before us what I would call three remedies that he prescribes to help us as we face these temptations in the midst of seeking to live for Him. The first thing, the first remedy that he sets before us is what I've called a righteous resolution. A righteous resolution. Notice what he says there in verse 27. I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit. We need to be a people who by God's grace seek to have a righteous determination to do that which is right. The term that is used here is a military term. The picture is one of a soldier who's standing watch over his post and he refuses to be drawn away from his assignment. He is unmovable. Did you ever see those, I don't know what they call them there in um, England, but these guys that stand there at attention... You know, wear the funny hats and have the uniform on. And, and every so often you see tourists come up to them and start making faces at them and doing other things, trying to distract them. And, and it's amazing. They just stand there and they do not move. And, and that's the idea that Paul sets before us here. We need to be people who are steadfast and unmovable. And then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
May God give us a holy resolution and determination with the aid of His Spirit to do that which is right and good even when it may mean harm to me. It may cost me. But may I stay fast. This idea is repeated in chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brother, in whom I long to see my joy, my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. May God give us believers who purpose not to defile themselves, not to bear reproach upon our King, but to live righteously and godly in this world. So there's a righteous resolution. There's secondly, a righteous pursuit. A righteous pursuit. Again, look at verse 27. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the Gospel. The word that's used here, striving, it's only used here in the New Testament, and it means to struggle together with someone. It's it's a term where we get our term athletic or athlete. So, so Paul is setting before us the idea of athletic, I don't know if it's a proper grammar, being, being athletes together, I'll put it that way. Being athletes together, striving together, working together. It's interesting that Paul has in mind a team. He doesn't expect any of us to do this by ourselves. He expects us to be a part of a community of believers who come along beside us and help us to pursue righteousness and godliness. We should engage in the pursuit of defending the truth. We we should engage in the pursuit of proclaiming the truth. The truth ought to be the treasure of our lives. But it's not to be a treasure that's simply admired and put on a shelf. It's to be a treasure that we share with others. We need to be pursuing together, striving together for the advancement of that gospel. So there should be a a righteous resolution, a, a righteous pursuit, and finally, I just called it a righteous bravery. A righteous bravery. He says here, verse 28, in no way, in no way alarmed by your opponents. Again, the terminology that Paul uses here is that of a startled horse. Caught off guard. Surprised. Peter tells us, don't be surprised when you face all kinds of fiery trials in this world. We need to be brave. We don't need to retreat. We need to press on. As we looked at last week, We have not the spirit of fear, 
But we have the spirit of power and love and a sound mind. How many times did we think about that this week in the midst of conflict, in the midst of perhaps being persecuted, in the midst of being opposed? And you wanted to back down. We say to ourselves, I I have the spirit of power. I'm going to go on. Proverbs 29 and verse 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. So here are these three remedies against these three challenges that we face in this world. We need to stand firm. We need to strive together. And we need not to be alarmed. Dear people, I trust our lives are marked by being a part of God's kingdom. I trust that God gives us the grace every day and with the help of His Spirit, we live as strangers of this world, but as citizens of the world to come. And so the challenge is, are you a part of that kingdom? Are you a part of God's kingdom? That's, that's the first question you need to answer. And you only become a part of that kingdom by going through His Son, Jesus Christ. But if you're a part of that kingdom, is it manifested, is it displayed in how you live your life here and now? Well, may God help us. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for the direction that Your Word gives to us. And we pray that even in this exhortation given to us by the Apostle Paul, that by Your grace we would so live in this world that others may know by our lives that we're a part of the Kingdom of God. We think of the disciples of old who had the reputation of being men who have been with Jesus. Well, Father, may we be people who so live that others might know these are individuals. There's a community of believers who have been with Jesus. Help us, we pray, to stand firm. Help us, we pray, to strive Help us, we pray, not to be alarmed so that by our lives You may receive all the glory and the honor and that we might say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live, Christ. Christ. For we ask these things in His name. Amen. Well, as we close our day together, take the hymns of grace, turning to 393, 393. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. 393. Let's stand together.